Welcome to Church 213. The book of James is a powerful blueprint for authentic and relational faith written by the brother of Christ. This unique letter challenges the minds and hearts of a church at its best. Journey with us through this book. Thanks for listening. A lot of you guys grew up camping. Can I get a witness? I grew up camping. Nothing says relaxation like spending two days packing up most of the house and then spend another day unpacking it somewhere else outside in the woods. Nothing says relaxation like that. Um, whether you go the primitive, primitive tent route or, or, uh, or, or maybe you go the, uh, the pop-up tent route, Maybe it's the RV glamping route. Whatever route you take to get your relaxation on. Um, I was thinking about this. There's really one ambition that all campers have. And here's the ambition. And you know, don't like you don't know, you know if you camp. And it's this. <clears throat> you want to get the best spot. You want to get the best spot. Uh, I bet that's the question that most camp hosts get most often. When someone rolls into the campground for the first time, it's this question, what's the best spot? If you went to a camping site and campground more than, more than once, what have you done before you left? You ride around to see if there was a better spot than the one that you had. Are y'all picking up this? You know it's real life. But here's what I mean by, uh, by best spot. It's this. Uh, which temporary space affords me the confidence that I can kick back and I can say, now this, my friend, is the good life. Let's say that together. This, my friend, is the good life. That was weak. This was weak. This, my friend, is the what? The good life. Thank you. That's, that's, that's kind of what you think about when you think about that, think about that good spot. I've seen couples with $200,000 camper rigs pack up their site that just took them hours to set up yesterday just so they can move 50 feet to get to a better spot in order that they can kick back and say, this is the what? Good life. And I'm, I'm going to admit, um, I'm kind of right there with them. I've, I've waited and I've watched and I've coveted for days for someone to leave the site next to me so that before the tail light leaves the campsite, I have jumped over there and laid claim to that spot like I'm part of some type of gold rush. Why the effort? That's the question. Why all that effort? It's this. It's, it's so that we can finally have all the right pieces in the right places so that we can kick back and say, now this is living. Now this is living. But here's what I found. Here's what I found in the pursuit of trying to get to the good life. You'll never arrive at it because it's always moving when you're trying to get it. It's this moving target. As soon as you think you've captured it. As soon as you think you've got the good life, as soon as you think you have, you have claimed that new, better spot, it moves on you. It's like trying to catch the wind, isn't it? Well, we're 10 weeks into our series that we've launched, working through the book of James. We've been talking and we've been taking a deep dive, verse by verse, interpreting the meaning and, and finding relative application so that we can be a church at its best. To be a church at its best, it doesn't happen by accident. To be a church at its best, we have to be, we have to be homes at its best. And in order for homes to be at its best, it takes the individuals inside of those homes to be at their best. It takes mom at her best. It takes dad at his best. It takes, it takes the children at their best. It takes, the, it takes the home into the church, into the community, into the nation, into the ends of the earth to be its best. And so this stuff matters right here. Working through this text and, and learning how to be a church at its best matters. And I'm going to tell you, the enemy is not happy when a church takes its next step and challenges 
the body of believers to be at their best. You know you're, you know you're in enemy territory when you're taking flack. And I launched this saying I want to, I'm ready to take some new ground in 2024. We have faced opposition. We faced uncertainty. We faced, we faced some things over the, the past week and a half or so that lets us know, hey, we aren't wrestling against flesh and blood here. We, we, are, we are over the target at a church at its, at its best. And so one of the things that we've seen over the past 10 weeks is what James is doing is he's given us these series of tests. He's walking us through. We've covered these tests almost every single week so that we can identify whether or not there is authentic Christianity in our hearts. Are we actually living what we, we say to be true? And so what we're looking at this morning is, is whether or not there's an intentional trust in possessions and better positions. That's another test for believers as proof of authentic Christianity. So James's letter is to some scattered believers living in the newness of Christ. He's writing to these believers. And, and these believers, they have a new goal for their lives. Their speech is new. Y'all with me? Their motives are new. Their approach to life is new. Their peace is no longer to be found in the hope of this life, but it's to be found in the empty tomb, right? And their eyes to be, are to be no longer fixed on the things of the world, but to be fixed on the things above. Paul says something very similar to this when he's writing back to the church at Colossae. Colossians 3, 2 and 4 says this, Set your minds on things above. Not on things of this earth. For you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is our life appears, then you'll also appear with Him in glory. And so in the hearts of these believers that were dispersed, most of them flooded out of the, the church in Jerusalem where James was the pastor. And so he's writing to them as these believers under the persecution, we find that in Acts, went north and west kind of around the, the body of water and they're making their lives right there in that region. And so these first century Christians that we've been following have been struggling against the traps of the Roman worldview. They, they've been influenced by those things. And that influence, y'all, is so intoxicating to the flesh. Man, that's kind of where we are now. Rome, America. We're not careful, man. We can go out in this world and we can be captured and intoxicated by the things that the culture is just throwing. I'm talking about dart after dart after dart. It will wear you down. We're not a church at its best. It will wear you down. It'll wear you out. It'll take you out. And what James is seeing when he's surveying the first century believers is greed and injustice had become the focus of eternal security. And that was becoming a dangerous trap for what should be a gospel-centered community. Their priorities we're being thrown off by the influence of the culture. And so James sees that. He captures that. And he's like, hey, church, you got to watch this trap. You have to watch this trap that's called materialism. He's calling it out. The trap of materialism. Hey, let's stand together if you have your copy of God's Word. James chapter 5, starting in verse 1. James chapter 5, starting in verse 1. We're picking up exactly where we left off last week. I'm going to pray for you. Can we pray together? Father, on behalf of your people, Lord, we ask you in the providence of your word, to do a work that only you can do. God, this word is, is sharp and it's purposeful. It's eternal. But Father, I know within a shadow of a doubt this morning that your word is ordained for times such as this. 
And so, God, I pray for every man in this room, Lord, that these words would fall on open and fertile, solid ground. God, for the ladies in the, in the room, Lord, that these words would fall on humble ground. It would fall on ground that's hungry, Lord, and thirsty for righteousness. Father, as we as a body of believers, in the oneness of Christ, hidden in the treasures of eternity, we would simply be soft clay on your potter's wheel this morning, Lord, and we would not just let these words fly over. Father, I pray that you would that you not allow the enemy to come by and to, to pluck these seeds from this ground. God, the thorns and the thistles of this week, God, I pray that you would prune those at the ground, so they would, they would have no effect to snag and to catch what you want to do in our life, Lord, in this place. God, we can't do anything without you. We can't even breathe without you, Lord. And so, Father, I pray that the next few minutes would be a sweet aroma to you. And, God, you would have your way in our lives so that our lives can make a way For the name of the gospel and the lives of those people that you put around us. God, you are so good to us, Lord. We simply say we give you our worship with our ears. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. James chapter 5 verse 1 says, Now come now, you rich people, weep and wail over the miseries that are coming to you. I'm going to be honest with you. I didn't want to preach this because it was heavy. I want to skip over it. But here's the beauty of just preaching expository messages through a book is you can't skip over the hard stuff. You got, you got to plow in there. But I'm going to tell you, it's when you plow down deep that you can take new ground. And so we're going to plow on through it. We're going to plow on through it. Verse 2 says, Your wealth is rotted, your clothes are moth-eaten, your gold and silver are corroded. And they're Corrosion will be a witness against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have stored up treasures in the last days. Look, the pay that you withheld from the workers who mowed your fields cries out and the, the outcry of the harvesters has reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived luxuriously on the earth and have indulged yourselves. You have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. You have condemned, you have murdered the righteousness who does not resist you. Man, what vivid language right there. So we're going to unpack that, bring a living hope into this place. You guys can be seated. Here's what James is doing. James is, James is laying upon the church another test to determine if what a Christian claims they believe is genuine salvation or is it just situationally convenient commitment. So he's writing to these believers, and I want you to miss this. He's saying, hey, are you a fan of the cross because your barns are full? Are you a, fan, are you a follower of Christ because, as the song says, who could imagine so great a mercy? What heart could fathom such boundless grace? The God of ages stepped down from glory to wear my sin and bear my shame. Is that why Jesus is your homie? I'll never own that shirt. I don't have a homie. I have a righteous God who loves me so much that he wants to control my life because he gave his life for me. And so a church at its best has to, uh, has to guard against the trap of materialism. And so how do we do that? I mean, if we, as believers, if, if, we are, if we are easily caught up in this, how do we guard ourselves? How do, we, how do we be a church at its best? You guys write this down. Just from verse 1, something you can hang on to. A church at its best that guards against the trap of materialism. A Christian knows that materialism is a real opponent. A Christian knows that materialism is a real opponent. And so remember what James is doing now. He's, he's giving these believers a test. 
He said, hey, I'm testing you in this. You've got to watch out for materialism if, if you're going to prove your authentic Christianity because the material, materialism is a real opponent. Look at verse 1. Come now, you rich people, weep and wail over the miseries that are coming on you. You see the, you see the attack? It's an idea of something coming against you. So the context here are people that were privileged places and they were people of great resources. Here's the fact of the matter, y'all. The fact of the matter is this. People have, some people have access to more stuff. That, that's, just, that's just life. Y'all with me? Uh, and so James isn't warning against the trap of having riches. If you think back in the Old Testament, some of the greatest Men and women of God had great resources. If you think about these believers, they were scattered. And as we looked the last couple of weeks, they talked about merchants. Some of these believers were merchants. They were smart, shrewd business people. They, 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 they have things. They have things as they come to faith. So don't get the idea that a church community should be a people known for poverty. Right? Some of God's greatest servants... In the Old Testament and even today are people of great abundance. But I'm going to say, I, I praise God for kingdom-minded people who the Lord has blessed. Not with stuff, don't get, don't get me wrong, but has blessed with the ability to steward much. I don't praise God for people that have a lot of stuff. I praise God for people that have, that have the ability that God has given them to steward that stuff. There's a difference. But the Bible does teach that prosperity obtained morally is far more secure than riches that are gained through sin. That's just a nugget of wisdom. Proverbs 20, uh, 10, 22 says it like this. The Lord's blessing enriches and He adds no painful effort to it. You do things God's way, it feels real good. You steward things God's way, it just feels good. But the mind... The mindset that James is calling out is one that turns gold into God. That's what he's trying to tackle here. Y'all, money is just a thing. It's no different than this phone. It's, it's no different than this pen. It, it's, literally, it's literally mashed up tree pulp. Really, right? If you think about money, the Federal Reserve note, it's a blend of 25% linen and 75% cotton. So when you carry cash, it's practically the same material as the lint in your dryer vent. <laughs> Carrying that stuff around. Jesus, and James calls those that have things of value to weep and to wail over the miseries that are coming. And as I read that, I'm like, why, why would James call us to weep and wail over dryer vent? Lint. Why should, we, why should we position ourselves of despair over some dryer lint vent? Really, vent, dryer vent lint. Easy for you to say. Why, why would we do that? Why would he want us to weep and wail over the good life? And this is it. Because materialism is an adversary to the walk of faith. It's an opponent. It's a formidable foe. Are y'all with me? Let me say, PR, how, how, how can that be true? How can having things of worldly value challenge authentic Christianity? And that's a good question to ask. And here's the answer to that. is because materials feed the desire for comfort. Y'all know it's true. The more comforts we have, the more comforts we seek. And the less dependent we become on seeking those non-earthly things that grow us up into the likeness of Christ. That's why it's an opponent. Why is it the more you sleep, the more you want to sleep? How many times, you know, as, as a kid, you just want to sleep in and your, mom's, your mom and dad's like, get up! You got to get going. Because the longer you lay here, the more you want to lay here. Because the natural desire is to seek comfort. 
Materialism, catch this, is so dangerous because this. Materialism is when the physical and financial take priority over the spiritual and the eternal. That's what makes it an opponent to your walk with Christ. It's this struggle that we're in. The more pieces of treasure we acquire this world, the more likely we are to lose focus of the Lord of heaven, who we will Stand before and give a full account of how we lived our lives for him or against him. And so it's a formidable foe. It's, it's very unlikely that a Ferrari is going to fertilize your faith. But it will fan the flame of hell. 1 Timothy chapter 4 kind of lays this out for us. Paul's reminding Timothy, if you point these things out to the brothers and sisters, which is what we're doing. You'll be a good servant of Christ Jesus, nourished by the words of faith and the good teaching that you have followed, church at its best. But have nothing to do with pointless and silly myths. Rather, you train yourselves in godliness. For the training of the body has limited benefit, but godliness is, is beneficial in every way since it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. This saying is trustworthy and deserves full acceptance. For this reason, we labor and we strive because we have put our hope in the living God who is the Savior of all, especially for those who believe. So what, what Timothy is being taught is there's a struggle going on here. You guys write this down. It's often in times of worldly need that heaven's hand is most wonderfully seen. Man, we had a heavenly need in here last week, didn't we? But it was in that moment that we saw, we saw the, 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 the body of Christ just pour out that unity. We saw that wonderfully demonstrated in this place. And it was in the midst of worldly need. And so what James is saying is, he's like, hey, you got to be broken over this raging hostility that hangs on the ropes day after day, ready to tag in at any moment and take us out. Weep over that. Man, when I was a kid, we would, we would all get in the floor and, and uh, you know, we would, me and, my, me and my friends, we would wrestle and, and uh, we'd always have, you know, we thought we were TV wrestlers, so we always had a partner that we would tag into. Y'all with me? But every now and then, my dad would come in. And all the boys would be like, Arr. but as soon as, as soon as I tagged my dad in, they would weep and wail, no! I mean, it was a game changer. Why? Because a formidable foe was about to enter into the arena of horseplay, and it was on. Right? You tag in somebody bigger, faster, stronger, you weep and wail. That, that, that's kind of the idea that he's saying. The word weep and wail is the Greek word that means sob and it means howl. This is so much more than just sniffles. What James is saying is this is a picture of somebody filled with intense outburst of shrieking and screaming. Uncontrollable grief. Man, what a, what a picture. For the house of believers. Because here's what James is saying. Anybody found in prideful condition of monetary dependence. It leaves you spiritually bankrupt. And if you're spiritually bankrupt. You have to stand before the Lord. Completely liable. For your own actions. And you face the full wrath of God. So he's saying, that's got to be a wake-up call for those who wastefully hoard things. Who unjustly gain things. Self and, 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 uh, to, to, to just be indulgent in your spending. For, for those that ruthlessly acquire He's like, you need to be weeping and you need to be wailing because you got to answer for that where you've put your trust. He's like, wake up. Put this to the test. The wrath of God is just one heartbeat away. So you please consider 
the reason that we labor and acquire. Oh, the opponent materialism is, isn't it? And then he tells another way that, we, that we've got to guard the trap of, of living the good life. And it's this. A Christian knows that materialism is unreliable. It's unreliable. Hey, it's a real opponent. It is a real opponent, opponent to, your, to your faith. It will take it out. It will test it, and then it will, it will take it out. But then he said the reason that, that you have to guard yourself against materialism is because it's unreliable. Look at verse 2. Your wealth is, is rotted and your clothes are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver are corroded and their corrosion will be a witness against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have stored up treasures in these last days. What James does right here is, is he casts this net. Are y'all, are y'all okay? He casts this net. And what he does is he, he pulls the net around things being stored up for selfish gain that most people attribute to wealth. And just like, just like then, still today, what he's saying is wealth is usually stored up and is demonstrated in, in three ways. It's, it's quality food, it's expensive clothes, and it's gold and it's silver. And so I did a quick Google search. I just put images of wealth. And I let AI do its thing. And these images popped up. And it was almost as if I was living right here in first century. Here's some pictures I found. First one looks like this. Man, the good life. The good life. Money, gold, cars. The bling. I mean, who doesn't need a stuffed tiger? I mean, my kids want a llama. I want a tiger. Look at this. It's just, it's, just, it's just pictures of first century. And so what James captures is the fact that this materialism transcends time, doesn't it? It doesn't change. It doesn't change because the heart doesn't change. We still have this opponent We still chase after unreliable things. Proverbs 23, 4 and 5 says it like this. Don't wear yourself out to get rich. Because you know better. Stop! Exclamation point. As soon as your eyes fly to it, what does it do? It disappears. And it makes wings for itself. It flies like an eagle to the sky. What he's saying is the pursuit of the good life is what leads to building a life on a sandy foundation. And and that takes our motivation away from trusting in the Lord. The more you trust in the things that are unreliable, the less you you are prone to putting your trust in what is reliable. But here's the thing. We have material goods. And so how do we navigate that tension We have reserves. Christians can have reserves. But those assets that God gives us is to be used to advance the kingdom of God. It's a resource. It's those reserves that God allows us to to have the ability, smart enough to, to steward. It's to be used to win the lost. It's to be used to care for those in need. It's to be used... To invest into what is unshakable and last eternally. Man, I'm so thankful that I have the ability to use Lent. To invest into something that will be be able to last forever. I can pay into an account that will never go dry. When I pour into the kingdom of God and his righteousness. I can take that 25% cotton and that 75% linen and all this stuff. And I can take what the government says has value. And I can lay it at the feet of Jesus. And I can use it. And I can push that stuff out. And it can go out and it will have impact forever. So resources aren't to be hoarded. 
that they are to be poured out into the world that needs to see the fullness of God's grace oozing from the redeemed. And those that claim the sufficiency in Christ, listen, we're, we're not to amass this, this earthly fortune of this earthly stuff that's uselessly stashed away. That's the key. Uselessly stashed away. Because that's a hoarding mindset. And what a hoarding mindset says is Christ isn't enough to stabilize my life. I need to have something else to lean on. That's the heart of the matter is always a matter of the heart, right? And so James takes these three things to paint this picture. He uses these three main ways wealth was valued in his day. And he's like, hey, wealth was valued in the food. Wealth was valued in the stuff. And wealth was valued in the clothes. The food, clothes, the gold. Those, those were the pictures right there. And he explains, hey, those are unstable pursuits. Like you build, you build your eternity on that. If you use those things to try to prop you up, man, it's unstable. And so I did another Google search. And, and, and what I searched for was, was images of instability. And I, I found some of these. This is the picture of what happens when we put our lives in the things that are temporary. Here's the first one. It looks like this. He really believes that those things around his waist are going to save his life. How unstable, right? Check this one out. Just let that one process. That's why women live longer than men right there. That, and she, she's looking at it, right? She's looking at them going, oh my word, I better get home. That's something my husband would do. And this guy's holding on over here just in case. Just in case. And then this one. That's a coffee filter. How unreliable is that? How unreliable is that? It's not going to help. In the end, it's not going to help. See, it's in vain to neglect the eternal for the temporal. You can get that off of there because that's all people are looking at. Thank you. I don't want you to miss it. See, see, it's in vain to neglect the eternal for the temporal. Y'all with me? It's in vain to neglect the eternal for the temporal. And for those that stand with a heart tied to the world, they will stand holding those. What this is saying is they will stand before the Lord holding those moth-eaten shirt and shoes. They will point to the stuffed tiger and the ring. They will point to the rotten food and, and those corroded coins and those precious metals. And in that moment, what the scripture is saying is that decay will testify against them. Like they hold those things as evidence in court before the Lord. And as a graphic testimony, it's, it's a sign of an unregenerate state of the heart. Look at verse 2. It says, Your wealth has rotted and your clothes are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver are corroded. And their, corrupt, their corrosion will be a witness against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have stored up treasures in the last days. And what a graphic picture. What a graphic picture right there of an unregenerate heart. What he's saying is, hey, coins rust and in the end, treasures are going to corrode. The best food that we pursue and we plan to get only rots. He's like, y'all wake up. May we not stand before God holding corruptible things. We are to stand before the Lord with something that rust and moth can't touch. We are to stand in something incorruptible. We are to stand clothed in the righteousness found in the Lord Jesus. That's the only thing we stand before the Lord with. 
You're not going to stand before the Lord with a rope tied to all the stuff that you've acquired. You're going to stand before the Lord giving account of how you have stewarded the things that He's allowed to flow through your fingers so that you stand as the brightness of the sun clothed in that of the Lord Jesus. I got Jesus, so that's all I got. You stand before the Lord. What, what do you have? I got nothing but Jesus. That's it. I had some good stuff one time. It was cool. I gave it away for Jesus. The scripture right here sums this up. 1 Corinthians 15. Paul says, For this corruptible body must be clothed with incorruptibility. You got to take off this world and you have to put on the eternity found in the Lord Jesus. Every day, when you put your physical clothes on, may it not over, may it not cover more than putting on the righteousness of the Lord Jesus. And this mortal body must be clothed with immortality. When this corruptible body is clothed with incorruptibility and this mortal body is clothed with immortality, then the saying that is written will take place. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where death is your victory, where death is your sting. The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus. To God be the glory. That's what we stand in the Lord. So how many of us get up every day and put all this effort into filling our barns? It's so easy to do because it's an opponent, right? I get it. And there was a time where, where uh, I was all about making sure that my freezer was full. Any of y'all have a deep freezer? You know, you got your... You got your normal freezer stuff, but then you got your man cave freezer. You know, years ago, I, uh, I hunted really hard one season. I spent a lot of money. I spent a lot of time so I could pridefully say my freezer was, was full of deer meat. And, uh, and each time that I would, that I would take, that, take that filet mignon of the woods and I'd take that tenderloin, I'd get that back. Every time I would clean it up and I'd get it packaged up and I would put it in the freezer, I'd pat myself on the back. Until one morning, I went to the garage, and the most vile and pungent smell hit me in the face. Y'all, it could have knocked a buzzard off a gut wagon. It was, it was like, what, what has died out here? Freezer died. And I, look, and I looked, and around the seal, there was deer blood running out. And so I said, hey, Debbie. No, I didn't. No, I didn't either. I didn't. Yeah, yeah, I didn't. I didn't either. I'm no fool. All that, all that meat was ruined. And I began to look there, and I began to realize, man, pride is perishable. Gone, just like that. Good food and good clothes are nice to have. There's nothing wrong with a good suit and a good steak. I want you to hear me. However, those things are unreliable to store up. That's what James is saying. They won't add value to your life in God's eyes in the last days. They're not going to add value to your life. It's been said that, that, that clutching riches can cost you your eternity. And that is so true. Because what James is pointing out is hell is very real. It's very real. It's as real as we sit here today. It's a, it's a place of physical torment. It's a place of consciousness. It's a place of eternal punishment. So many places in God's Word does it make reference to not only the glories of heaven, but the realities of hell. A place where believer or unbelievers are separated from the presence of God. It's very real. Luke 16, 24, talking about Physical torment. Father Abraham, he called out, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water to cool my tongue because I am in agony in these flames. You guys know what phantom pain is? It's real. People that have lost appendages can, can still feel. So you're, you're telling me even though you might be separated from a physical body, you can still feel pain? Yeah. 
And so in that separation state, before, before your, your body is, 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 is uh, reunited with your, with your spirit in between the resurrection and judgment and death, immediately you are in a place that you can feel pain. And the only thing you can do is beg God for mercy. Matthew 10, 28. It says, don't feel, fear those who kill the body, but are they're not able to kill the soul. Rather, fear him who is able to destroy soul and body in hell. These are the words of the Lord Jesus. But know this, according to Matthew 25, hell was created for Satan and his angels. The scripture says that hell is having to be expanded. Why is it having to be expanded? It was never intended for the glories of God's creation. His image bearers, me and you, it was not intended for that. But make no mistake, in our fallenness, in our, in our hardened hearts and unsubmissive ambitions, we fight against the Lord. And how do we fight? Because we, we strive to make ourselves little kings. We strive to find the next best spot so we can put our feet up and expand our own kingdoms, don't we? It's easy to do. And what does that do? Well, by default, it pits us against the Lord now. And it pits us against the justice and the righteousness of God in eternity. Why is that true, Pat? That's such bad news. Because God cannot and will not let high treason just slide. The cross wasn't cheap grace. Hell is so unbelievably terrible and horrific that it cost the Son his life for me and for you. That's why there was such agony in the Garden of Gethsemane. Laboring, sweating, drops like blood. But yet the son says, not my will, but yours be done. He was willing to endure it so that we can experience the fullness of life. Of the 1900 or so words that Jesus spoke in the New Testament, about hell was only about 3% of it. Heaven was about 10% of it. And so just by those numbers, I think it's safe to say that that the other 87% of the time, Jesus was speaking about life. He was speaking about relationships with the living God and, and people and how to navigate this life in victory. And for me, that takes the bad news and, and that makes it good news. It, 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 it isn't the fear of hell that saves you. You with me? It's knowing that Jesus is the Son of God that saves you. But it's in that reminder that, hey, we are going to have to stand before a righteous God and give an account that pushes us to try to understand the glories of heaven through the Son. I don't even want to try to scare somebody into heaven. You can let them know the realities of it. But I'm not going to scare my kids to love me, right? I love my kids to love me. I, I give them... I, I blow wind in their sails and I encourage them and I'm patient and I'm kind and I'm gentle... And I'm firm. Mercy and grace. You see what I'm saying? And so yes, we can stand and we can yell, hell is hot, turn or burn. We can do all of those things. But we have to balance those things with the, the bad news, but yet the goodness that's found in the cross of Christ that causes someone to hear it and then to contemplate their own fallenness and turn to the Lord. That's, that's the beauty. Put, put your eternity... What he's saying is put your eternity in the unshakable foundation of Christ alone. And those that fail to do that, they suffer the judgment by their own doing. Look at verse 6, uh, verse 4. And so he's walking through this. How It's so heavy because materialism is, is, uh, is just so dangerous. And so in verse 4, he says, look, the pay that you withhold from the workers who mowed your fields, they cry out. And the outcry of the harvesters has reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. Y'all, sometimes I watch the news and I watch what's going on on my feed and I'm just heartbroken because it seems like the unrighteous are getting away with it. And I get angry. 
But I was reminded in this text right here that the Lord of hosts is taking names. And he is going to execute judgment in his timing. Scripture also says that it's his patience that leads us to repentance. And I'm thankful that the Lord was patient with me. And so I need to pray that the Lord would give me patience for those that he is still pursuing. Even in their unrighteousness, the gospel is still calling out their name. And so I'm not discouraged when it looks like they're getting away with it. It's nothing gets by the eye of the Lord of hosts. That, that causes me to love the unlovable. That, causes, that truth allows me to pray for those that seem that nobody else is praying for. As you look, at, you look out and you see the ones that God has, has given authority to govern and they're using their governance for evil, knowing that they're going to have to answer the Lord helps me pray for them. So verse 4 says, Look, the, the pay that you withhold from the workers who mowed your fields cries out, and the outcry of the harvesters has reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived luxuriously on earth and have indulged yourselves. You have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. You have condemned, you have murdered the righteous who does not resist you. How do we battle materialism? A Christian knows that materialism hurts other people. We know that materialism hurts other people. The people who had means were also under judgment because how they were treating the people that worked for them, who they had hired. And if you think about the, the, the social fabric of injustice that's around us, a lot of it comes by materialism. Most of the social injustice then and still most of the injustice now stems from materialism. The, re the reason that he laid this out was because in first century, what they would do is you would hire someone and you didn't get paid weekly or bi-weekly or monthly. You got paid by the day. It was very much a, a, day, a day labor type situation. And what would happen is greed would, would motivate some landowners to hold back some of that pay at the end uh, of the workday. And they went back on their word. And in essence, they defrauded the poor. Man, this is, this is that scene right out of, um, of um, Napoleon Dynamite. Where those boys work all day picking up those eggs. And they're expecting to get paid. Have y'all seen this? And, and, and the farmer comes out and they're all ready for the cash. And he pulls out a couple of, of coins and he lays them. And then he cracks open raw eggs and he gives them. That's their pay. They get to drink raw eggs. And they look so dejected. I know that's kind of trivial, but, but in, in, in my mind, trivial things for trivial minds, right? In, in my mind, that's, that's where my mind went right there. They were leveraging their authority. They, they, even, they would even work the system of dishonest gaining in court. And they would take all this money and they would pad their own pockets. The scripture um, refers to that as fattening their own hearts. Why the Grinch hate the Who's in Whoville? Because they were honest. They were joyful. They were humble. They were giving. And they were loving. That's why he hated them. I don't know if the script was written out of John's chapter, James chapter 5, but it could have been. I doubt it. Because when the Bible uses the words murder the righteous, what it means is the rich hated those who were honestly working hard. And even though the rich had more and could get more and had power and authority, somewhere in their hearts they hated them, even in their sincere work. And so back to the campsite. This is that guy who swindled and who cheated and who's oppressed many to get all the stuff the world has to offer. He takes all this fancy stuff and he rolls into the campground. He sets up, he kicks back, he's relaxed and he's feeling accomplished. He's feeling secure. He's like, now this is the good life. Just for him and built by him. 
And as he's laying there, he, he watches as this modest campground employee makes his way around to spot after spot, picking up trash and changing out the trash bags. And as this employee makes his way to the site, humbly and honestly, pride rises up in his heart of the man with earthly treasures. And the more that he watches him work, the more secure he feels in his indulgence. And James says, woe to that man. Y'all, you know that's a tragedy, isn't it? And what a tragedy. And for a church at its best, may it never be said that our stuff gets in the way of loving people as Christ loved us. You know what Jesus had access to? All things. Everything. Even on the cross, he said, I could call down legions of help to protect me. Even when he was being tempted in the desert by the enemy in Matthew 4. He's like, even if I were to cast myself down, my father would send me angels to protect me. That's an eye, that, that, that shows us that Jesus had access. There was nothing off limits to him. Yet he laid down his life for me and you. Un, unimaginable riches for a crown. And so that's how a church is at its best. It's just living out that same model in the life of Christ. Philippians 2, 1 through 8. If you take your Bibles, let's go there together. Philippians 2. It's on page 1058. It's Philippians 2, starting in verse 1. says this. If then there is any encouragement in Christ, any consolation of love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any affection and mercy... Make my joy complete by thinking the same way, having the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility. Consider others as more important than yourself. And everyone should look out not only for his own interest, but also for the interest of others. Verse 5, adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus, who existed in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, church, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant. Taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by being obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. You guys write this down. We'll always force others away from Jesus anytime the focus is setting ourselves up. That'll preach right there. To quote Pastor Joe, that's good stuff. We'll always force others away from Jesus anytime the focus is on setting ourselves up. And here's the picture of that. You try to lift yourself up, you're going to climb over other people. You try to make yourself great in your house, you're going to push down your kids, and you're going to hurt your relationships inside those four walls. You try to make your name great in the workplace, you're going to have to cut the legs out from other people in order to get there. But that pushes away the opportunity to show them the love of Christ. Martin Luther, the great reformer, was no friend of the Pope. You know that. He nailed those 95 theses to the, to the door. Of all the problems that, that Luther had with the church, drums were one of them. Okay, But there was a lot of other things that he had issue with. And after his thesis had been clearly delivered, he wrote, 
I am of my own heart. I am afraid of my own heart than of the Pope of Rome. For in my own heart there dwells the great Pope self. And so as I just kind of searched the scriptures, I said, is there, is there something, Lord, that you would have me, is there something you would have me to live by when it comes to materialism? Lord, how, how, how can I steward my thing? How can I set my heart right each day to make sure that I am thankful for what I have but focused on how I live? And it's this scripture as we close. Proverbs 30. It says, two things I ask of you. Don't deny them to me before I die. Keep falsehood and deceitful words far from me. And give me neither poverty nor wealth. Feed me with the food I need. Otherwise, I might have too much. And deny you saying, who is the Lord? Or I might have nothing in steel profaning the name of my God. So a wonderful prayer for a church at its best to battle materialism is just to walk humbly with the Lord, live truthful and honest lives, and trust that God's going to give you exactly what you need so that you can stay in His lane, so that you can point other people to Jesus. That's how we're a church at its best. Let's stand together. Come on, praise team. Hey, they're going to come in just a few minutes and they're going to sing a really good Jesus song. And so the question for us this morning is just simply this. What's God calling you to do and how long are you going to continue to wait to do it? And whatever that looks like in your life. Whatever that looks like in your life. Maybe it does hit home with materialism. Maybe you need to go home and clean out a storage closet. Here's what I've experienced. When I try to buy more and more and more, I feel more empty. But the more I give, the more alive I feel. And so maybe that's the challenge this morning. You just say, Lord, help me to better manage my assets so that I'm investing in something that will never rust or corrode or never rot away. Something moth, moths can never reach. Maybe it's time to clean out some things. Hey, maybe, maybe the reality is you don't have a relationship with Christ. You've been hearing the gospel of what Christ has done for you. And you can't live your life for Jesus because you don't have him in your life. You simply want to come forward this morning and, and surrender and lay your life at his feet. And say, the thing that I need to empty out is my own pride and rebellion. And I need to invite the king of, the, the king of heaven into my heart. I need to follow him in believer's baptism as a demonstration of my full surrender in the life of Jesus. What a better way to start 2024 than knowing where your hope is found. And nothing less than Jesus Christ and his righteousness. Maybe you just want to simply come to the altar this morning and, hey, maybe you want to pray for the things that are going on in this place. Man, I invite you. Man, it was a beautiful picture last week. Let me invite you to come down here and pray over what's going to happen in this room Thursday night. Something significant happened in this room last week. And I'm believing that something significant continue to happen in this room week after week. Man, maybe you want to come down and pray for the ladies on, on Sunday. Ladies, maybe you want to come down and pray for the men that are going to be here on Thursday. Whatever, whatever the Lord has laid in your heart, I'm saying don't neglect the Spirit of God church at its best knows that doctrine is our bedrock unity is our glue, ethics is our power and Jesus is king and so if he's king of your heart this morning I don't know, sing it out sing it like it's real sing it like it's real let's pray together Father so often what you do in our lives is invisible but if it's real, it will manifest itself in fruit that others can see. It will be consistent. It will be powerful. It will be contagious. 
It will stand the test of time. Lord, it's not about always doing the right thing, but it's making things right when we do the wrong thing. God, I thank you, Lord, for the way that you shape and mold us every day. You pick us up when we stumble and fumble, when we miss the mark. Lord, we can look upon your Son, who is the perfect standard of righteousness for us, and we can put our assets and materials and trust there. God, help us to build on a stronger foundation this year, a foundation that's stronger than we've ever built before. God, move in your people. God, help us not neglect this opportunity and privilege that we have as a body to do what the body does. Submit ourselves to your authority. God, you're the king of our hearts. Rock it and shake it so that we can be poured out, shaken out to a world that needs you, Lord. Indeed, a world at its worst needs a church at its best. We pray this in Jesus' name.